Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Today's guest, Steve LaRue, is a veteran industry executive in Hollywood, having worked at Paramount, NBC's Universal, and 20th Century Fox, where he championed such little-known series as Battlestar Galactica, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The X-Files, The Simpsons, King of the Hill, Ally McBeal, and Farscape. Steve has guest lectured around the country and appeared at the Nashville Writers' Conference, the Great American Script Fest in Los Angeles, as well as the London Screenwriters' Festival. When he's not on the beach in Santa Monica catching waves, Steve writes on all things entertainment for SurfingHollywood.com. Steve, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. Now, I think we first met up at the Nashville Film Festival a couple of years ago and somehow got talking about a monastery in Kentucky that we'd both visited, the Abbey of Gethsemane. Yes, that is uh, 20 minutes from my hometown in Kentucky. Now, I was wondering um, if you find that solitude at a place like that actually gives you more perspective on life. Well, um, absolutely. You know, I'm the kind of person who is always in search of wide open spaces. Nice. You know, so that I can um, let my thoughts go in order to bring them in and focus on what's most important to me. Now, before we got on the air, you were we were talking a little bit about the Appalachian Trail. I say Appalachian because I live nearby, but the Appalachian Trail and your <laughs> quest to <laughs> your quest to one day maybe tackle it. Yes, um, you know I was very moved by Cheryl Strait's novel Wild and you know her experience on the Pacific Crest Trail, and I loved the the movie. Um, from Jean-Marc Vallée and Reese Witherspoon. I thought that was terrific. And I, I knew that, you know, that's something, that's for me. And I recently um, read a fantastic story from Outside Magazine. You know, actually it's a true crime story about huh. a murder that happened on the Appalachian Trail. And it just sort of reaffirms the notion that, you know, that's something... I want to do. I want to. I want to see it from beginning to end. That is an awesome goal. And just having been on parts of it trail running, I can tell you it is beautiful. And if you ever are able to come to this area of the country, you have to let me know. And um, there's something called trail magic. Like for okay. people who are through hikers, sometimes. They, um, folks who are not hiking it will stop at trailheads along the way and have free fruit and so on. And people who are hiking it call it trail magic because suddenly they get an apple and they haven't been able to have one in months. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm the, I'm the youngest of eight, and I have five older brothers. So oh, my, my thinking is, is that I would split the trail up and, and you know, hike a section of the trail with each of my brothers. That sounds great. Cool. Yeah. Now, um, when I remember when we were talking, uh, at, I think it was in Nashville or maybe it was in L.A., and you had mentioned something to me I've always remembered. I, I bet you don't even recall, but 
you said that you vote for movies with your wallet. In other words, you'll go to movies that you look at going to a movie as a way of voting for its success. And I've always remembered that now that I think about, oh, maybe I'll go to this movie and then I think, is this a movie I want to vote for? I don't even know if you remember saying that. Uh, I I don't remember our conversation, but that, that is something I very much believe about. Now, uh, Hollywood um, really values um, the opening weekend of a film, you know. Hmm. And so if it's a film I believe in and a story that I want to see um, replicated in terms of a trend, then I will go vote with my wallet and see that movie on yeah. opening weekend because I know that matters um, to the business. Now, you have championed, like I listed, a number of different shows spanning the gamut. I mean, from, you know, uh, Ally McBeal to The King of the Hill and The Simpsons, The X-Files and Buffy. Um, is there something that, a nugget or a, a specific thing that you're looking for when you hear a pitch for a series or or something like that? Because most people, I would venture to say, are specialists in one area, say action or thrillers or mm-hmm. something along those lines. But you have found these these shows that are so varied, but also so successful in the end. Um, well, each of those shows had a different path to success. But the one thing all of those shows had in common was a clarity of voice, meaning the writers writing those shows from... Chris Carter to David Kelly to Joss Whedon to Ron Moore, their writing was clear as a bell, and none of them sounded like the other. They were all extremely distinctive. Something that you mentioned to me um, when we were chatting one time was just this idea that the passion and the, the the passion of the person bringing a show to you mattered a lot. That one of the questions that you would ask had to do with why are you passionate about this and why are you the one person who can share this this story with the world? Mm. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. It's not something that's typically taught at conferences whenever they talk about producing a pitch or or talking with a producer. But to you, oh, that yeah. seems like a real important aspect. Well, I mean... um if you're not passionate about the story you're telling me, I'm not going to be passionate about uh, telling it to my boss. You know, yeah. when you have to spell it upwards. And so I have to take what you've given me in terms of your passion and uh, and sort of make it a snowball effect. Because, you know, in Hollywood, everyone is selling upward. You know, you have hmm. to spell management on what on that great idea you've just heard. Buffy's a great example. Um, you know, I read that script as a, as a spec TV pilot, and I read it, and Joss Whedon's voice was so clear and so funny and so smart and uh, that, you know, it just ignited my own passion of, uh, this is something that's got to be made, and I would not um, relent 
from um, making sure that 20th Century Fox got the right to make that show. Interesting. And I think it's true um, not only for you know screenwriters, but also for novelists who might be talking to an agent or an editor. Um, sometimes I've I've worked at conferences where they'll have people practice their pitch um, that they might be giving, at, you know, to, to uh, an industry yeah. professional. And and so often all they want to do is you know summarize the story. Well, my story is about you know an FBI agent who's tracking a serial killer or wh- whatever it might be, and immediately the eyes gloss over. It's like we've seen that a million times before. And my first question is, why do you want to tell this story? What is, yeah. what is, what is it about it that excites you? So, uh, and I, which, is, yeah. which breaks that rhythm of practicing a pitch? But that's, <laughs> human, but that's the human improvisational element of a pitch meeting. It's, it's a conversation. It's not a one-sided, and now you'll pitch for 20 minutes, and I will respond. It's a, you know, it's a... It's a give and take. The best ones are. The most successful ones are. Now, when you think about um, a show to watch or a movie to watch, and you're going to vote for it, what, what is it about that story, Steve, that really draws you really draws you in. I know for a lot of people it's character, for some people it's emotion, for others it might be the plot, something like that. What are you looking for in stories that you really believe in? Well, um, I'll use The Big Sick as an example. That's one of my favorite movies of 2017. And, you know, that was, I'm not a romantic comedy kind of guy, but that story... And that writer, it was his true story of how he met his wife, uh, their dating, their courtship, and it was so unusual and funny and had so many unexpected twists and turns. And it was interracial. It was it was just wonderful. It was a game changer in terms of um, the romantic comedy genre. I loved it. Are there certain rules? For and by the way, genre? that script got nominated for an Oscar. So, oh wow! Because it was because it was his Kumail Nanjiani's. It was his story, so yeah. no one else could have told that story but him. I think about the novels that I've written, and um, I feel like when I look at those stories, I do feel that's true. That no one else could have told it, or told it as well, or told it in the unique way that I tried to to do that and um i really feel like i want to avoid cookie cutter stories that anyone could have chomped out i want it to have that voice to be that to have that passion behind it i was thinking that when you mentioned you know romantic comedy would you say that for different genres of stories there are certain rules i'll put that in quotation mark air quotes that people need to follow or certain conventions that they need to fulfill or uh, would you say there are certain ones that really work well to break um i'm not a big rules guy i like people who love to subvert the rules or break them or surprise me with how they're um attempting to color in the lines so i'm not a big rules guy 
because um, we're not making boxes. We're making art. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I'm not really a big rules guy either. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember you told me that you'll create a mystery and not know who your killer is, and that kills me. You know, that, <laughs> you know, but, but I love that. You know, I, I love that as a creator, you can uh, you can do that. You can have a murder, but not know who the murderer is until you work your way through the story. And I love that. Yeah, it is true that I've, I've been quite surprised in some cases <laughs> about where you know the story actually goes. And I remember in one case, uh, my book was due on August. In, in August, and then I got an extension until September 1st, November 1st, and, or October, and then November, finally, November 10th. And they said, we really need this book November 10th. I said, okay, of course, I'll get it done. And um, anyway, November 7th came, and I still couldn't figure out the ending. It seemed too contrived. And I realized I needed to change who the killer was. And it was a 500-page book. I'd worked on it for a year and I realized that the only way to really make the story work was to go back and revise it. So I remember being in the Cincinnati airport at a Starbucks. <laughs> Which, by the way, in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I called my editor. I said, I've got some good news. This story's going to be even better than we thought. And she said, oh, that's great. I'm really glad to hear that. And I said, I, I said, I need to change who the killer is. And there's a long pause on, <laughs> on the line. And she said, well, I trust you as long as it'll be a better story. But but it took me uh, hey, you know, a long time. Hey, that is a valuable editor. Yeah. Says yeah. That. That's wonderful. Yeah, she trusted me. And um, the closest I've ever come was not knowing the ending of Every Deadly Kiss, which is my latest book, until three hours before I mailed it, I sent it in no. through my email. Wow. I knew kind of where it needed to end, and I knew at that point who the bad guy was, but I didn't know the real ending until three hours before. Mm. But, but I really you know, think... I think... I will say in this day and age, the audience can pick up on whether or not... A TV show knows where it's going. Like, um, I use Lost for an example. As an example, do you remember that show on ABC? Sure. Uh, you know, I I loved that first season, but in the second season, I was certain they did not know where they were going. So I yeah. checked out, and I got back in on the last season and and picked right up because I didn't want to. I didn't need to just sort of hang around and wait for them to find their way. So. Yeah, I really loved the first season of that as well. And I know an actor who was friends with some of the people who were the writers for it, and what you said is exactly the case. They had no idea where they were going. Yeah, and, and the audience yeah. is sophisticated enough to pick up on that yeah. in the stage. So, so Audiences TV, really are. I think you need to know where you want to go. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think so. It's like we want to have that, um, I guess, trust in the story writers that they're going to tie things up in a way that's satisfying but not too predictable. That right. I know there are some shows that I've started to watch, and I feel like 
they're not really fulfilling the promises that they've made. Others, I just have the sense that I can trust these writers that everything that I'm seeing, even though I can at this point tie it together, will eventually be brought together. Mm. Um, I think of Breaking Bad when I think of that, that um, I came to the place where I really just trusted that things were going to tie together in a way um, that even though I couldn't see exactly what was going to happen, it, it ended up for me being a satisfying ride through the series because I felt like they did a good job of doing that, making promises and then keeping them. Mm-hmm. I agree, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of Vince Gilligan, who uh, began his career on the X Files, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Now, I remember growing up, and well, I'm not I'm not that young, but but watching the X Files, and I loved the the um, the X Files. I have to ask you this question that people have asked me as I've talked about protagonists, and. Uh, who would you say is the protagonist of the X-Files? Is uh, it Mulder or Scully? It is Scully. I agree. And I, and when I've told people Do that... Do people think it's Mulder? Different. Yeah. Yeah. And I really feel because she's the one who's on the journey. He, um, he doesn't change. She... Is exactly. That, yeah. She doesn't change. Period. Yeah. And he's a believer from beginning to end, if it ever ends. So <laughs> let's hope it doesn't. At least not it, for a long it, time. Actually, it's supposed to end. Uh, Jillian Anderson has announced she's not going to do anymore after oh, really? the current batch of episodes. You know, and uh, Chris Carter doesn't want to do anymore without Mulder and Scully. Right. So it's supposed to end. So, well, and I think it should. So yeah. I, I think I think Mulder and Scully should end the X Files. There, there's no end to yeah. that universe. I like that that idea that writers create a universe that, um, whether it's viewers or readers, they want to spend time in that universe. And yes, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> That's a and you know and that's a huge trend in film and in TV right now. Um, you know, Warner Brothers has the DC Comic Universe, um, and Fox has the X Men Marvel uh, properties. Disney has Marvel. Yeah. Uh, Universal has the Universal Monster Universe. Paramount just options uh, fourteen Anne Rice novels to do oh, yeah. the, uh, the Scott Universe. So that's a huge trend right now. When I was thinking about um, this idea of universes, I remember going to a film festival and someone, I, I can't remember, I think it was from Warner, was there and she she said, we just bought the um, intellectual property to a certain toy. Uh, and she <laughs> said, <laughs> and she said, we're going to be creating these movies based on this toy. They had... They had no story. All they had was a toy. Yeah. But because of the intellectual property, they wanted to build up this whole story world universe based based on a toy. My uh, friend Danny Festa um, did that exact, very exact same thing with the troll dolls. 
and she worked on those movies for 10 years. Wow, oh my goodness, wow. The screen. And, you know, they've made two movies off a, off a Swedish doll. <laughs> that's, to me, that's, it's backward. It seems backward to me. <laughs> uh, the thinking is, uh, and it's all a, a business marketing uh, point of view um, in terms of the business strategy is those, Dolls have already have a built-in audience. Yeah, uh, and it's I mean, yeah, that and it's an international sense. one. So the idea of a movie, uh, a large number of people already know, have an idea of what it's going to be and if they want to see it, which is why there's so many um, um, remakes of films, of TV shows, adaptations of popular novels. For TV shows, reboots of old TV shows, is because there's already an audience that's familiar with it, and so they don't have to spend marketing dollars telling them what the show is going to be about because they already know. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it from that perspective. I always think about it from the storyteller's perspective <laughs> instead of the marketer's. But the, the good news for storytellers is that you know that's probably. 40% of what's being made. You know, there's always going to be a room uh, in Hollywood for a great new original idea. But it's got to be, you know, you know, if you're the studio or the network, you've got to hedge your bets and, you know, yeah. have, you know, 40% original, 40% uh, remakes, uh, and, and 20% a mixture of something else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's fascinating. Now, earlier, you'd mentioned that you're not really a big rules person. Um, Would you say that there are certain myths out there, um, whether it's in Hollywood or just in storytelling in general, um, that that so many people maybe are buying into, but that in the long run, they're really not as true as most people would think? Um, I think the, the first that comes to mind is that, you know, you don't have to be in Hollywood to create in television anymore. You, yeah. know, you, don't, have, you don't have to physically be here. You can do that from wherever you are. And that sort of goes into one thing I love for people to, to know is that regional voices are really in, important in terms of the film and TV business. We we need other stories that aren't set in L.A. or New York. So it's, from, no matter where you live in the country, those stories and your voices are, are just as viable. Sometimes when, sometimes when I look at a novel, it feels like it could be picked up and set in any city. Um mm-hmm. You know, like, you read it and you're like, it could be in Chicago or it could be in Milwaukee or it could be Mm -hmm. in San Diego. You just pick it up. Or shot in Vancouver. (laughs) What's that? Or shot or produced in Vancouver. So it could be in So so many seem to be these days. Um, um, But I like stories that are so tied to a location that you can't do that. Me too. Yeah. Uh, you know, specificity is, you know, a buzzword for me. You know, um, 
if you're going to, I love, make me feel that I'm in Nashville, you know, make me feel that I'm in New Orleans uh, or, or Baltimore, you know, I, I want to, because I'm going to want to go there. Um, you know, one of the biggest hits ever in TV was the, the show Dallas, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's because the entire world fell in love with, you know, the oil, oil barons of Texas and their, and their lives. And, and so, and that made Dallas, you know, an international hit and a city that everyone wanted to visit and still do to this day because of that TV show. Um, on a much smaller scale, I wrote a novel that took place in San Diego and had a aquarium, an, an aquarium, uh, a large aquarium in it that I made up. And I was doing a radio interview once, and someone said, I went to San Diego to see that aquarium. And he's like, it's not there anywhere. <laughs> One of those examples of the regional uh, voice and the regional feel and what needs to happen in that, it just seemed like that had to be the city for yeah. that story. I mean, um, Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series, Yeah, you know, with that in rainy Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, and, you know, that was wonderful. And, you know, that created a whole industry of tourism, you know, for that part of the country because of those books and those series of films. You know, people wanted to see those places. Um, When you're thinking about a show or a movie or something like that, Steve, what would you say are some of the changing trends in the way that people are consuming stories these days? Hmm. Well, um, CBS, NBC, or ABC first, and we don't watch TV the same the way we used to do five years ago. You know, uh, we can binge watch series. You know, we can stream it to our various devices. So, and that changes the way you tell a story. It's, uh, you know, if you, there's no appointment viewing anymore, meaning I have to watch an episode and wait a week for the next episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that doesn't happen anymore. And it's, and it's going the way of the dodo. So. <laughs> I know it's true for me. When uh, when I find a show that I like, I completely binge watch it. I just I get into and it, and, yeah, and it's enjoyable. And uh, yeah, and um, most people under uh, forty are don't pay for cable anymore, so they're consuming television much differently than uh, people over forty who are probably still watching the networks. I I usually try out a show if people recommend it to me. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, I'll give it um, maybe two episodes for me and see if it really draws me in. Um, Do you think that's typical that people choose maybe two episodes? Or do you think a lot of people get really into a show and watch half of it and then maybe abandon it or... Or how is there a dynamic there in the way that stories are told that keeps us riveted throughout ten, twenty, or sixty episodes? Um, you know, it depends on the show. 
screening yeah. property. I think word of mouth is always the best marketing tool that uh, anyone could ask for. Um, yeah. Big Little Lies on HBO was a water cooler type of show. It was an adaptation of a popular novel, and it was a big hit. You know, women were really talking about that show, and and because these characters struck a chord of these moms in Monterey. So, you know, that's an example of, you know, shows that just, you know, strike an, an, a nerve in the zeitgeist of, of, of America, and that did for, for women. Yeah. When I think about stories that are being told, uh, there are different sort of theories out there about stories. Some people believe that stories are primarily there to reveal characters. Others will say that they're, they're there primarily to change them, mm-hmm. so that the character at the end has been transformed in some way. Others will say that the character at the end has been revealed in some way. Do you have a view on either of those um, different perspectives about story or about characters? Uh, I I hope we live in a creative world where you know, there's room for both. Yeah. That. You know, uh, if the character is changing, I, that's, I think that's interesting for the audience, you know, to... Uh, to go along that journey, that journey, which is why Scully is the protagonist of the X-Files. Yeah. You're invested in her journey from stick to believer, which is, which is one I think we're all on. So, um, I, but yeah, I think, I think you have to invest in the character and also, uh, you know, something has to key into your own, um, subconscious of why it appeals to you and that could be the big reveal at the end you know it's, it's also your your reveal so did you ever watch six feet under on hbo no i i didn't oh, actually that the series you should binge <laughs> you know that that was a series that had a great journey but it also had a great reveal in its series finale which was so satisfying to the viewer and, and that's why that series is known for having one of the best series finales ever because it was so satisfying to the viewer and such a great um coda to you know five years of storytelling i was thinking of breaking bad again and i think it was the fourth season finale that had almost a triple or quadruple twist ending. And, <laughs> and But I found that to be so satisfying because I'd been watching it for four seasons and and all of a sudden there were callbacks to little details yeah. in previous yeah. shows that I loved it. Yeah. Yes, I love that. I think a lot of, I mean, my view about revelation or change or transformation has to do with where the most promises are made. So if the most promises are made for internal um, struggle um, or where the most tension comes from internally, I tend to think that those are ones where you'll often see the character change. But if if the most promises are made for tension externally, 
then you'll tend to see more revelation. And when it comes to interpersonal stories, relational stories, coming of age or romance, I, I see it, it kind of be both. Um, and, uh, and I've got to have twists in those traditional yeah. coming of age stories. You've got to give, you've got to deliver it to me differently because <laughs> I've seen a lot of those. So. Are there secrets that you've noticed over the years working with so many different writers that, um, that I guess I would say are secrets to writing twists? I think twists are amazing. I love mm. a great twist in a story. And I kind of try to deconstruct it to see what elements are present so that when I'm writing my stories, I can do the same thing. Um, I, think but what you, I think you have to amuse yourself. You know, if it doesn't delight you, it's not going to delight the reader or yeah. the viewer. Um, Morgan and Wong, who wrote some of the best X-File episodes, always loved to um, have a peppy Carpenter's music uh, playing before <laughs> gruesome murder happens. <laughs> so, which is just always their way of just luring you in. Oh, that's such a happy song, and then someone is just brutally murdered. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's that, like a pendulum swing. Yeah, and that was the sense of humor, and that and that always delighted me as a reader, a viewer, and their editor. Yeah, you know, I, and it, and it became their signature. You know, oh, a peppy song's playing. Watch out! So, <laughs> something is coming. Yeah, something um, bad is going to happen. <laughs> I think that. You know, one of the keys to twists is really expectations where you lead people to an expectation. And there are different, um, clearly there are different types of twists, but sometimes there's one where you pull the rug out from under them. And then there's those more subtle twists where, you know, people watch and they're like, huh, that's nice. I didn't see that coming, but that's a nice moment. And yeah. it isn't the jaw-dropping twist. It's, I guess it's more of the, huh, nice twist. Um, and I find them both satisfying. Me too. Me too. Now, I know that a lot of people wonder about ways to break into the industry. And one of the things you mentioned earlier is you don't have to necessarily live in L.A. or Hollywood in order to um, to do that. Um, and the avenue for everyone is probably different, as you mentioned earlier, with all those yeah. different shows. But are there any pointers that you have for people? Um, I would say, first of all, don't write the same script over and over again so that you've spent two years with multiple drafts of one story. Hmm. <laughs> you know, write something, do a rewrite, a polish, and then start something else. Um, that's a pitfall that writers fall into, new writers do. The yeah. second is, you know, we live in a day and age where you can go ahead and make something on your own, whether it's shooting a scene on your phone uh, and, you know, putting it up on YouTube. You know, that's a where, where, by the way, where people are looking for interesting content on a daily basis. You know, that's uh. a viable way to do something. Also, not all stories have to begin as a screenplay. They can begin as a novel or as an article, yeah. a blog post, a podcast. You know, all those avenues 
are available to everyone. Um, and, you know, and the basic, the other go-to, you know, recommendations I think that you'll hear, you know, in our contests, you know, there are some yeah. really good contests, you know, and let people, professionals, review your work. And if you win, great. That's a great uh, calling card to, to have in your in your back pocket. I wonder and, uh, about like, and like yeah. you and you and I met at a regional screenwriting festival, and and that's great. You know, there's going to be one near you, and and go because you're going to meet you'll you'll meet your tribe there. <laughs> I you know I went to Nashville and to L.A. and a couple of other places, and I did meet just the most fascinating people and. A lot of times it isn't necessarily in the sessions, uh, you know, where you meet them. It's at the cocktail parties or yeah, or afterwards. Or at breakfast, or, you know. Yeah. And I think you just have to be open and serendipitous and and also, you know, like you mentioned earlier, passionate about your idea. But don't use people. I don't think people want, you know, whether it's a producer or what, editor, agent, um, when you get to know them, it seems like the best thing is to is not to give them the impression that you're going to use them or that they're a stepping stone to success, but that you care about them as a person and you want to develop a relationship with them. Agree. I mean, uh, we connected uh, on a real level over our mutual admiration of the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't even remember how it came up in conversation, but that was a real organic connection, you know, that we shared. It wasn't a a schmoozy networking moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Schmoozing is a good word for it. (laughs) And you'll see a lot of that. And I understand because people have a limited amount of, you know, of time and they really want to make it worthwhile. But... um, but I think it has to do with, you know, a, a large matter of respecting people and just getting to know them. Yeah, and also uh, being being a genuine person. You know, yeah. be yourself. You know, and, and that that is enough. Do you know Do you know any uh, words, I guess, of advice or something that you've learned over the years that you wish you would have been told earlier? Hmm, that is a great question. Yeah, maybe when you were getting started um, back in the day. Uh, I wish someone had a, told me to to buy a house in Venice when I first moved to L.A. That would have been great. <laughs> um, I think uh, I, I, the thing I wish someone had told me was is um, go out there and fail as much as possible. And because you're going to learn the most in your failures. And instead, that's something I gained in hindsight. Um, For every hit show I've worked on, I've also uh, developed, you know, 50 scripts that never saw the light of day. But that doesn't mean they weren't worthwhile or fun or enjoyable. They just didn't uh, make it across the finish line. That's a great perspective i think most people you know would say oh i want to succeed right away and a lot of it ends up being perseverance to oh I, yeah. yeah and uh you know 
and and it's all about that relationship of people you want to work with again. Yeah. When you think of adaptations, maybe from a novel, we've talked about novels a little bit to film. Um, what are the maybe I guess the challenges to keep the heart of the story, but um, but also to adapt it clearly to a different medium. Um, when I was at one festival, there was a writer there who's pretty well known, and he's done a lot of really big movies. And he said, when I am adapting a story from a novel, I'll read the novel, and then I will um, look at it as just a, t- a way of having a silent writing partner that I don't have to listen to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he'll read it once and then write it and maybe maybe glance back at it once or twice. And I was just aghast because I'm the novelist you know, in the audience, and I'm thinking, that's that's so disheartening for me to think that they're not going to, you know, strive to tell the same story, just kind of look through it. And, you know, if I need to, I'll refer to it, but I'm going to tell the story differently. Well, you know, Game of Thrones on HBO is, you know, that's the super hit of adaptations of the moment. And those executive producers with George R. R. Martin, you know, as a consultant, you know, opened up his world. And mm. and they had to take characters in different directions than they went in the novels. So some died earlier, some died later. Everyone dies, of course, uh, <laughs> because that's his, that's his books. Um, but, you know, they had to, you know, use the novels as a blueprint so that they could do 21 episodes. Hmm. You know, per book. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So uh, Outland is I... another great example. Oh, you, know, okay. uh, you know, that's a very popular series of novels by Diana Gabaldon. And, but Ron Moore, who created Battlestar Galactica, uh, you know, had to open up those novels and, uh, you know, lose some minor characters, bump up some others, but really focus on the two... Um, romantic leads so that it's satisfying and that they have somewhere to go over, you know, 13 episodes a season. Yeah, when I think of, you know, my uh, my books, I'm like, of course, people have asked, well, if your books were made into a TV show or movie, what if they change something? And I'm like, well, they have to change it, <laughs> clearly, because it's a completely different medium, but you know, I would really hope that they wouldn't lose the heart of the story, and and uh, and you'd want to be in business with a studio that wants the author to be involved in some capacity. Otherwise, yeah. you know, why do they want your book if they don't want you? If they don't want your your you know overview of your of your own yeah. story. So. Yeah. Talking with another novelist uh, recently, and he said he was asked to write a, um, a script for a novel that was out there, and that wasn't his. But he's like, oh, "Okay, well, he read it, and he he went to Hollywood, and he had his copy of the book all um, highlighted and dog-eared." And he walked in, and they said, "Oh, no one told you." And he's like. 
no one told me what. It's like, you read the book, didn't you? It's like, yeah, I read the book. They're like, oh, you weren't supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's just crazy. I can't even think about it. Yeah, I would not want to be in business with that person (laughs) if they didn't read the book. So, Um, In fact, one of my favorite shows right now is American Gods on Stars, which is an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's novel. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's just wonderful. And they've opened it up in areas that I could not have foreseen. And I've just been delighted by um, what they've done with his novel. And he's been, you know, Neil Gaiman's been involved as well. But um, Michael Green, who just got nominated for an Oscar for writing Logan, and Brian uh-huh. Fuller, you know, are the showrunners of the first season. And they just did a, a fantastic job with those characters. Really great. Now, um, do you have any closing thoughts, advice you learned, or something um, that has struck you either in your professional life or private life? I know I would say one of the things that's always impressed me about you is you seem to really have a good perspective on life. Um, it isn't just about the business, but you surf, you want to hike, you experience life and, and kind of its richness and, and its expansiveness. Is is that some? Am I right in seeing that in in you? Because um, I feel like you're not just another professional trying to make money, but that there's a bigger picture there. And uh, well, I love it. You said that, but, and it's also I don't want to be behind a computer all day. I want to live life. You know, so that I have something to write about or talk about or, you know, share with other people. You know, does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. I've sometimes told people you need to live between drafts. Um, yeah. That, yeah, uh, we R- Richard Bach is one of my favorite novelists. And, uh, oh, yeah. I love his... Um, I don't know. Not It's not a mantra, but it's basically he avoids writing as much as possible and only puts pen to paper when an idea grabs him by the throat and refuses to release him until he puts it down on paper. And I, I love that. It's like the idea, you know, the story has got to grab you. Otherwise, it's not going to grab anybody else. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. It's almost like it has hooks of its own, and I don't know exactly where all ideas come from. I can't really tell you where, if it's the subconscious or the conscious or the connections, but I do know that, for me at least, there are certain ideas where I just cannot shake it. And sometimes I'll think about it for months or maybe even a year or so, and it's there. And even though my agent might not be as thrilled about it at the beginning, (laughs) he maybe doesn't (laughs) capture it. It's like I feel this is something. You're the artist. You're the creator. Yeah. Well, Steve, I've really appreciated your time. It's neat to get an insider's view. Yeah, an insider's view, you know, of of Hollywood, but also storytelling. And for someone who's had such a a wide variety of stories that he's been involved in telling. I feel like no matter where we are at, if it's screenwriting or novelists or whatever genre it is, we can take something away from your insights. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, of course. And uh, to connect with you online or maybe see when you might do another appearance um, or uh, touch base with your the shows that you're you're involved with, is the best place surfinghollywood.com? Yes, that's my that's my personal site for uh, my professional business. And you can also follow me on Twitter at SteveLaRue2. And uh, that's where you'll that's where I'm most easily found. Excellent. Uh, for everyone listening, thank you for your time. Uh, for more information about my stories uh, and my books, you can go to stephenjames.net. And for more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.